Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in Japanese Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Jonathan Abel about his book, The New Real, Media and Mimesis in Japan, From Stereographs to MLG. The book is out from the University of Minnesota Press in 2023. It's a history of our relationships to new media. The book centers on different modalities of mimesis and mediation and more as it explores the important transformation of new media into the new real. Abel describes this new real as the phase when the newer, better, faster, more realistic media of marketing hype becomes absorbed into the fabric of society and daily life. The new real uses diverse case studies from over a century of modern Japanese history, including stereoscopic photographs, the phonograph, television, video games, even emoji, to explore the social effects of this new reel. Okay, uh, Dr. Abel, John, welcome to the podcast. Uh, so we're going to be talking about your book, uh, The New Reel, Media and Mimesis in Japan from Stereographs to Emoji. Uh, so tell us how you got interested in the project that became this book, The New Reel. Uh, well, I, I, it's it's a, a long and circuitous path to this book, but... Um... I first started, I guess, uh, thinking about questions of media in Japan a long time ago. Before I went to grad school, uh, I spent three years making Japanese TV commercials in New York, uh, which is basically producing short 35 millimeter films, um, you know, at a high budget. And uh, that was sort of my first um, interaction with the Japanese media world. And then um, kind of been teaching film uh, in various uh, ways ever since. And so ever since grad school, I think my second year in grad school, I, I taught a course that um, they needed a, a adjunct fill-in at Rutgers University. And I taught film there for a semester and I've been teaching film almost every other year um, since then. And that's many, many, many years ago. Um, so film was, was sort of one of my my ways into uh, questions of, of of media for sure. And uh, I'm also an avid photographer, uh, which uh, I, I think gives me a kind of different 
um, purchase uh, than, than a lot of people. I uh, probably, as you gathered from the book, play video games and, and things like that. So, I'm, I, you know, I have various kind of interests that over in, intersect with um, things that pop up in, in, in the book. Um, and uh, I first thought that this book would be primarily on um, copyright, which became the second chapter of the book. But um, after my first book, which is on censorship, I thought the inverse of censorship was uh, to deal with copyright issues. So censorship kind of re re is thought to restrict uh, production and copyrights thought to protect it. I thought these were kind of two would be two interesting uh, inverse projects. But I was coming at it from a liter literature standpoint. And what I realized um, it, about literary copyright was um, there weren't a lot of interesting cases. And I think part of that has to do with the amount of capital required to uh, create literature. Um, usually it's one person sitting alone in a room in the standard model of creating literature, you know, writing with a, a, a brush or a pen or something. And um, uh, it changes with with big media uh, or expensive media uh, like records and film where um, a translation isn't required to know if you copy if you violated my copyright. I don't have to understand your language. I can see it or hear it, and that kind of instant apprehension is something people talk about um, in, the, in those court cases. So I became more interested in media through, through that lens as well, sort of intellectually, as I was thinking about a cop book on copyright, um, and that's kind of the genesis for a lot of the stuff um, in the book. Yeah, and that's interesting. I think I think a lot of people will pick up on, um, as you said, not just that you uh, are a video gamer, but also that you have this uh, sort of intimate relationship with the, with uh, much of the media that you're talking about. Um, so this is uh, this is a really ambitious book. So I want to sort of jump jump into it, make sure we have uh, plenty of time to talk about it. Um, you know, and, and ambitious in the sense not just sort of theoretically, but also in the scope of what you're doing. You're, you're sort of looking at a century and a half of, of these very disparate case studies, um, probing different angles uh, of the question of sort of how media both represent and shape uh, the worlds we live in and the worlds we imagine. Um, and these are obviously Japan-based uh, uh, case studies that are rooted in Japan, but specifically they're, they're really keying in on this idea of new media, uh, which you have uh, referenced in the title, right? The new real media and mimesis. Um, so with that in mind, I I'd like it if we could start by asking you to unpack the following quote, which is in your introduction. So you write, when a new medium has become quotidian and unremarkable, even boring, and we are ready for yet another next new thing, the new real arrives, our lives having been transformed through the social absorption of the no longer new medium. So when I read that, um, it seemed like it was a setup for a lot of the things that you're thinking about in the book, uh, specifically the sort of the temporality, the newness of new media and the media life cycles, the life cycles of their epiphenomena, uh, their influence um, that make them into that sort of no longer new media that you reference here. Uh, so I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, uh, respond to that, uh, and do that sort of in the context of the theoretical stakes and positions that you're laying out in this book, uh, starting with chapter one. Sure, it's a it's a very big question, so I might take some time to uh, to answer it. Um, so I guess new media, you know, it's a funny term, and it's been studied by a lot more people uh, than I have, and historicized and such. Uh, if people are interested, they uh, you know, scholars like uh, Lisa Geidelman have done. Uh, better jobs than I, I do in, in the book, uh, specifically about um, the kind of 
uh, always already knew media. Uh, but uh, I can give you a little context where I'm coming from uh, with the statement that you quote, um, and then uh, talk about what it means for, for the book and then kind of uh, lay out um, what I do in that first chapter to kind of respond um, to, to this, this problematic. So one of the things that's not in the, in the book, uh, and I, I think it's great to have the, these, this kind of forum uh, to, to talk about the stuff that's not in the book, but that kind of helps understand the book. Maybe it should have been in the book, um, is uh, my you know, academic uh, and theoretical philosophical grounding comes from literary and art theory and history. And for a long time, like I've had this kind of, um, uh, uh, I don't know, curiosity about or problem with um, how the strangeness I, I uh, find myself uh, when I'm reading cultural history, I find the uh, kind of repetition. And this includes media history as well, how histories of realism end up seeming kind of cyclical. And that is, um, you get this kind of early moment in the history of realism uh, where some there's some sort of stylistic or technological breakthrough, and then all of a sudden people think, "Wow, this is it! We 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 we're we're really getting something here, something that that feels new." And um, and the artwork um, and technology then kind of uh, sits around, and people copy it and things like this uh, after a while, and and it, it, we start to get bored with it, right? Uh, it's it starts to seem samey. Um, and then we need, we crave another kind of stylistic or technological breakthrough, rinse, repeat, we get this kind of cycle going. Um, and this makes sense to me, uh, uh, it, it makes the news seem kind of more relevant to our to our world. Uh, and it makes it seem unprecedented at that first moment, that early moment of kind of the uh, adoption of the new style and new technology. Uh, and we can see this, this makes sense to me of like the histories of, of romanticism, to new realism, to social realism, to cinema a verite, um, but also like our fascination with our gadgets like hi-fi, high resolution, more megapixels, dial-up, DSL, cable, broadband, and now VR, AR, AI. So like th this kind of like intense seeking of uh, what media studies people call immediacy, the, the kind of immediate connection to, to the real world. Um, uh, and so what, what this means, what this kind of cycle to me means is that we can't we, we, we have to take any claims by marketing uh, and media studies scholars about newness of media with kind of multiple and huge grains of salt uh, and kind of see them as simply historically ignorant of uh, cases of presentism, right? Where you're, where it's, it's, you have to kind of forget everything that's come before. And if you're going to believe these, uh, uh, the hype of, of the more megapixels, right? Um, of the faster connection. Um, and yet they're not completely wrong. We always, uh, you know, the the fact is, is something does kind of feel a little bit different once we have the more megapixels and the, the photos do look a little bit different or the connection does seem a little bit faster. And now I have, I, I can see a little bit more of, uh, you know, the sweat on beads on, you know, Robert De Niro's head on in, when I'm watching a, a, a movie that I never noticed that before. Anyway, uh, and this kind of gets at uh, something that dropped out actually in the editing process of, of the book. The original subtitle of the book was Media Marketing Mimesis Made in Japan. Um, so that marketing term, right? But that that kind of marketing of of uh, of immediacy to us is something that is is in the book. Uh, it's kind of just dropped out of what we were foregrounding in the, in the subtitle. Um, 
So what the book then suggests again and again through its case studies is, is that uh, once our desires have been thwarted, once we kind of get to that point of being like, wait, the, I have to buy a new camera again. <laughs> I have to upgrade my iPhone just because of the camera, whatever. Um, the desire that, uh, you know, that were peaked for this kind of uh, uh, immediacy through these marketing schemes, uh, once once we realize that is just like, you know, chasing flying pigs or or golden calves or whatever, um, it's at that moment typically that, that um, we can see a more mundane mode of use of those technologies. Right. So it's at the moment where people are kind of like um, fine with uh, fewer megapixels, slower connections to the Internet. Oh, I just need to, to use the Internet for um, email. I don't really need to stream video. Give me, you know, give me the, the less broad band. <laughs> A medium band is just fine for me. I'll, I'll pay for that package. And kind of at that moment, um, that's when... Uh, the new media, I, I argue, kind of have become part of everyday life. That's that's the the moment of the new real that I'm I'm trying to articulate in this book. Um, there's this case that I talk about um, in that chapter one of Nipper the Victor talking dog. It's the image that everyone's seen of the dog standing before the new medium of the phonograph, kind of tilting his head, seeming a little bit perplexed at hearing his master's voice, um, and we can kind of. Um, relate to that image, and and people do relate to that image. I think that we feel kind of sympathetical to uh, uh, towards that image, and the book kind of narrates these moments again and again of uh, encounter with um, our new media from from that Victor uh, talking dog all the way through, you know, sitting on our toilets with our cell phones and writing poop emojis. Um, fundamentally, the world hasn't been changed in the way that marketing and media studies want to kind of push out to us that it has. Um, but rather, we've kind of adapted and adopted the media into our kind of routine lives. We start to kind of mimic what we see in those spaces. And this gets at that the last bit of your question, um, which I think was uh, moving towards the question of uh, hypermediation. So I talked a little bit about immediacy, um, but the this this the new real is kind of pushes towards um, hypermediation or hypermediacy. Um, and I, I try to lay out in that first chapter a kind of doubled understanding of mimesis that pervades scholarship. The book describes two modes of mimesis that uh, have existed as definitions of, of the term since at least uh, its ancient Greek origins and still carry a significant weight in the humanities. Um, and I want to talk about them uh, kind of in in a, th a three-part order. Um, these two, two that is, I'll talk about the two two forms of mimesis and then this this uh, third form, which is what I'm calling the new real. Um, and I don't mean to say that there uh, that there's a history here that that one comes uh, before the other, but I think it's easier to kind of talk about um, them in, uh, in in an order. So on the one hand, there's this what I'll call mimesis one, but that's not because that's, it comes uh, before, but it's because it's closer to me as a, a scholar of literature, and this is the uh, the kind of understanding of mimesis as representational, that is as something that uh, is, is like a mirror that re represents the world, right? That reflects the world. Um, and it's uh, akin to what media theorists 
talk about when they talk about immediacy. That is, uh, you know, we have a, a, a kind of better reflection of the world. But on the other hand, there's this kind of other mimesis, I'll call it mimesis too, a kind that I think is more often discussed in like anthropology or ethnomusicology, where you're talking about mimicry, and it's usually mimicry of, of humans, of other humans and bodies of other bodies, where a human copies another human or an artwork they, and, and mimics another artwork. And media studies in recent years has talked about this in terms of like re remediation. Right, so the idea of uh, one media picking up uh, something that is is common in another medium. So you can think about um, a, a digital book in which there's kind of a page flip, a page turn, right? Or even uh, sometimes in in old old timey movies, you get that kind of page turn or chapter two, or kind of shows up in, the, in the, on the screen. Um, so that that kind of remediation of one medium into, into another medium. Um, now, the book recognizes both of these modes of mimesis, both that is representational, uh, copying the world, and uh, mimicry, copying another copy, as uh, kind of in tension with each other. So, as I said before, they're kind of, it's a modal understanding rather than a kind of historical one that is uh, at a given moment or a given uh, work, you might think of one as more salient than the other, but the other is also kind of always present. Um, and what I, I try to put forth is the kind of third possibility that that might explain this tension or name this tension, and I call that the new real. And that recognizes that these distinctions are not really as clear as these disciplines like literature and, and anthropology or something have made them out. In other words, once we recognize that the only way we copy the world, right, in Mimesis 1, the only way we represent the world in, is in a medium, then we recognize that we're kind of already always in mimesis too, because the medium then is already parts of genre, parts of language, parts of things that are copying other copies. And so mimesis one is something of a kind of mythological uh, position because we can't really copy the world directly. It's always mediated. And therefore we're, we're always sort of in mimesis two. And yet we can kind of think about mimesis one, that is we can think about copying. So um, th this sort of tension still seems to, to hold. Um, and we can best see this, I argue, in moments of uh, hypermediation, where a medium kind of mediates itself, where, you know, a, a, we have a book about a book, or we have a, a film about a film, right? So th those sorts of moments uh, really kind of help us see this tension in, in process, it, it because it refers back to our own consumption moment and how we're, it kind of gives a theory of how we ourselves are consuming the very thing that we're consuming in that moment that we're reading about the, the book about the book, right? So um, that's hypermediation. So I'll leave it there. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, it's a long-winded answer to- No, 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 not at all. I, it's, it's uh, it, it was a long answer, but it was also barely enough to sort of uh, fit it all in there because it is, it is actually quite complicated. And as you point out, there's, uh, you know, a really interesting tension between, uh, in, in the book, not just between these two- types of mimesis that you talk about and then hypermediacy uh hypermediation but also the the tension with um the desire for immediacy for not having mediation for not having mimesis that 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 really um yeah that it, it's uh, laid out very clear and clearly in the answer that you just gave and it really drives through the whole book um it also sets up very nicely uh what to me i think is is usefully seen as kind of a unit um chapters two through four which explore different aspects of these um uh, uh different types of mimesis and mediation 
Um, and so you're building on the, the conversation we've just been having, uh, looking at the interplay of representation and mimicry in new media. Uh, and you talk about the how this could create the conditions for stereography and stereomimesis. And I'd love it if you could uh, flesh those terms out for us. Uh, camouflage and copyright. And then also, and this is sort of provocative and I thought interesting how you say that, quote, the copycat might reveal the media mimesis nexus. Um, and I wonder if maybe we could start to jump into this kind of unit here uh, through the case study that you use in chapter four, uh, which is a TV series, uh, the English translation of uh, the title, you give is Moonlight Mask, Gekko Kamen, for, for those of us who know it from uh, Japanese. Um, and it kind of anchors, I think, or at least can serve as an anchor to the conversation. So can you tell us about Moonlight Mask, about Gekko Kamen, um, and how you've used that in your book to sort of uh, bring these concepts out and uh, uh, flesh out your argument? Sure. So um, Gekko Kamen is a really kind of interesting uh, um, example for me because it's the the first post-war um, television superhero that looks like a, a lot of the contemporary Japanese television superheroes. Um, so things like uh, Kamen Raida. Um, Gekko Kamen is a um, uh, guy who, uh, like tons of other heroes, rides a motorcycle in, in Japan and wears a mask. Um, but he himself, is he, he, though he's the first, he's also a copy. He, he's a copy of Tani Yutaka, the, um, who, who they also made a, after Gekko Kamen got canceled, a, another television show about Hari, Hari Mao. Um, but uh, uh, Tani Yutaka wore a turban and uh, fought for justice against British imperialism. At least that's the legend in the Japanese wartime imaginary um, is a Japanese guy uh, living in Malay um, and uh, sort of a guerrilla um, fighter. And to some extent, Gekko Kamen, the, the hero, kind of evokes um, Tani. But at the same time, he's also uh, the, the product of a uh, direct scheme uh, in Japanese telev early television to come up with content that looked something like The Lone Ranger and Superman, which had been airing on, on Japanese television. So he's a copy in kind of two directions, a, a, a nativist or his, uh, um, nationalist um, imaginary one, but also this kind of international global uh, um, copy of a new media or localization, right, of, of this, this, this new form. So um, it's interesting in that sense, right? It's copying the real world, but it's also copying copies, right? In the sense of the two mimesis that I just uh, out outlined. And at the same time, um, it leads to this kind of situation, um, a, a really, uh, I think, also contemporary uh, kind of situation in which we have uh, copying happening outside of the television too. That is uh, particularly young kids were felt compelled to cosplay the the hero and um, dress up and wear a mask. And in, indeed, the marketing of this superhero series uh, produced masks in order to get kids to uh, wear them, but also to sell vitamins uh, uh, primarily. But there were a bunch of other uh, goods linked to, to the hero. And the 
th this ended with um, uh, several kids um, hurting themselves and, and finally dying by copying his biggest super move, which was jumping down from tall places. And uh, uh, one one child uh, jumped from the top of an apartment building, uh, four stories, and and died. And the series got canceled as a as a result of this. So it's a kind of interesting story. Um, because of that but it it also then forever changes or at least for a, a generation changes how people i argue saw justice itself in japan he's called uh seigi no mikata this kind of uh, ally of justice like many japanese tv superheroes are still called today but um, there's an entire generation afterwards of artists and politicians who will call themselves at that particular moments gecko comment to to say that they're taking up the cause and sometimes it's tongue-in-cheek but sometimes it's serious that they can't imagine what it would be like to take up a cause of justice without thinking of this superhero that somehow justice is otherworldly or, or comes kind of from this this um television space and that's the kind of new real when we when the medium has so affected our everyday life right that that um, we really just can't even fathom something that we should be able to fathom without it, but we end up, you know, resorting to our um, our, our media. And then the, the other two chapters, you talk about the stereoscopy chapter, which is um, really the first case study in, in, in the book and historically uh, so as well, kind of narrates a similar trajectory. As you as you said, these are kind of a set, these chapters. Um, and so in, in that chapter, I, I talk about how um, stereoscopy was supposed to connect us to the world. That is, it was sold as a kind of uh, armchair travel. You could sit at, at, at home in your living room and see the world because it would it would be present before you, um, you know, pop up right in, in your eyes as you st stared into this stereoscopic device at these at these photographs. Um, so it very much was drawing on this kind of idea of representation or mirror or immediacy connecting us to the world. But in the end, when you stare at it long enough, uh, or you kind of understand you're sitting in your your living room at the same time as you're shuffling through these things, it always is a little bit fake. And sometimes as you stare at these things, a lot of, uh, of um, media studies scholars have pointed out that um, the effect is of, of the, these 19th century um technology really it doesn't feel very real after a while that in fact as, as you stare at you know, hundreds of these things um you you start to kind of see lines around the things that are supposed to pop out and it almost feels like it's a diorama and people have said that this is because you're looking at two 2d photographs not nothing's 3d and so what your your eyes are kind of um being fooled into creating this this 3d sense but it's it's not co quite complete, and that's why it feels kind of uh, uh, like a di diorama. So it kind of fails, right? The the uh, eventually, uh, but at first it may kind of um, you may snap into this this mode of apprehension and think, oh, this thing is present before me. Um, and so the the chapter kind of narrates that um, that that feeling, and also the the way in which the the photos themselves are constructed. Uh, on the basis of other photos that came before. So the photo history is deeply connected. So for instance, you have 3D um, stereoscopic photographs taken of the um, Russo-Japanese War. And the guy who famously takes them studied under another photographer who took regular 2D photographs at uh, the Sino-Japanese War. And so, you know, it's the new technology uh, being adopted, but it's also a copy of what the old technology 
was doing. Um, and then I end the chapter uh, thinking about another use of stereoscopic photography, uh, which is 3D printing into the world, um, which happens in the 1930s. This um, guy, Morioka Isao, um, develops this way of taking 360 pictures essentially around uh, mostly people and then um, basically doing 3D scanning this way by shining a thin stream of light against uh, the figure's face usually um, and taking 360 of these thin streams of light, he could then print them up and cut them out and uh, stitch them together and then use that as a last to make a, um, a bronze sculpture. And he created a business out of this. And it was a, it was a, a kind of um, early um, 3D, 3D printing, scanning and printing. And this to me kind of gives a, a, a very tangible sense of how the medium right can stand in our world and, 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 and change us um, and become part of our, uh, our lived experience. So it was a very kind of easy way of 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 telling that story of the of the new real um, by en ending with that in the chapter. And then the the other chapter, um, the third chapter in this set of chapters that that you were asking about is about Miura Tamaki, who was a diva, uh, opera diva in in Japan, one of the first world class, world famous opera divas who played over 2000 performances uh, as Madame Butterfly around the world in over 40 countries, um, came to be known as the most famous, the most recognizable, internationally recognizable Japanese person on the planet, more so than than the emperor and the prime minister uh, at the time. So, you know, true celebrity, early uh, celebrity of 20th century Japan. And uh, she was also the uh, called the bicycling beauty because she um her uh her father said you can study music as long as you get there uh to to Gedai, uh on your own to and uh he and so she picked up a bicycle and would cycle to uh to Gedai every day and people would see her and apparently at the time women didn't bicycle very much um so very famous person even in the city when she was a young, a young woman and then uh went out, out to the world uh, became this famous person, then comes back to Japan and records some smash hit records, uh, selling over 80,000 copies of her performances of Madame Butterfly in Italian, it, but on Japanese record labels. And that's fine, no problem. She goes back out uh, internationally uh, to sing again, then comes back a second time in the 20s and translates them into Japanese, the same songs that got her 80,000 sales. They translated, figuring they're going to melt, make even more sales. And they get shut down by this guy, Wilhelm Plage, Plage who's a, a German copyright hound for BIME, uh, the European collective copyrights holder for artists in Europe. And this made... Miura, who had met Puccini, who Puccini himself said, you are my ideal Madam Butterfly, uh, kind of scratch her head and think, what's going on here? Why uh, would Puccini's heir, who I met, who I remember driving me from the train station to Puccini's mansion in his car, why would he be suing me for uh, uh, money while I'm singing the songs that I've always sung? Uh, she couldn't figure it out. And uh, eventually, um, 
during this time, the Japanese culture industry is also scratching its head at Plague, who had basically in something they called the whirlwind of Plague storm, um, who uh, he basically managed in this whirlwind storm to shut down the the culture industry, the music culture industry, from playing European records at all on the radio. So NHK for a period of about six months isn't playing anything because he's he's lodging so many fines and complaints and suits against them, um, and so they're getting frustrated. Um, they start binding together and thinking about um, how they can control uh, this situation, which is kind of getting out of hand in, in their minds. Um, and at that, during that time, Miura is asked by a small filmmaker who's a dentist who is doing a small short cut paper film animation, uh, it's about a 15-minute film, to sing Madame Butterfly. Uh, as the soundtrack for the film and she does that but then they realize that they might get in trouble and the, the film may never be able to be shown because of it so she writes her own version of Madame Butterfly for this film so the copyright kind of creates the copyright issues kind of create the need for her to to be uh, more creative and and to come up with something else and she does so and so I, I kind of look at this as a moment in which um the the in the first instance Miura kind of taking on this role of becoming the perfect Madame Butterfly is kind of Mimesis one um where she is stepping into this this role but it's also really Mimesis two because it's it's uh the role is this kind of stereotype right it's a it's it's literally uh the most stereotypical view of a, of a Japanese woman uh, possible. But she takes this on kind of consciously, becomes uh, a Madame Butterfly for all intents and purposes. And then that kind of slows down and becomes boring, you could say. And she then produces something else in that other moment. Uh, and that's kind of uh, what this chapter does. But again, it leaves us with the way in which this whole kind of a series of episodes with Plage changed Japanese copyright law forever, uh, creating Jasrak, the the uh, the law system and uh, that produces the Japanese uh, national rights holding conglomerate in Japan, which is called Jasrak. Um, in other words, to get rid of Plage, they decided they had to have their own national um, rights holding um, entity and uh, that no foreign nationals could could do so in, in within Japan. And that, that's still the, the case largely for, uh, for copyright today. Yeah, and I think that for me, this was uh, sort of interesting to think about uh, copyright in terms of in these in these national terms, which is not at all how I think uh, I had considered them uh, until now. So that was really interesting. And I also I just on a personal note, I found it uh, reading through chapter four, the uh, the Moonlight Mask chapter, uh, thinking you know of, about conversations I've had with uh, friends of mine, most mostly but not not exclusively Japanese, where you'll you'll find somebody in the conversation saying, "Oh, it's like a Ghibli movie," or like, "Oh, this is you know, it's it." I feel like we're in a Disney film or something like that, and and it, it's that sort of feeling of like I, I'm not sure which side of the mirror I'm really on here. Um, and, and that sort of disorientation, which comes through these uh, refracted mimeses and hypermediacy that sort of drew me to that chapter as a way to, to, to jump into that. Um, but it's also, it, 
it, it's an interesting sort of uh, segue into the next chapter, which is chapter five, which is about games as media, um, because, you know, of course, games are kind of, they're, they're the, 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 almighty media they're everything right you have cutscenes which are which are full movies at this point you have you know interactive media you have uh it's audio it's visual it's you know to some extent tactile now with the haptic controls and whatever um so i think this is a really interesting way to think about that feeling of like am i am i part of this is it part of me where where are we that kind of disorientation um and so so in this chapter you give uh, a sort of a prehistory, I guess, first to start out playing with this idea of interpassivity. Um, but then you dive specifically into a case study of a game called Steins Gate um, and its aesthetics of stereomimesis and the resulting hypermediacy that we've been talking about. Um, and you write that, quote, as a game that can hardly be considered a game, Steins Gate illuminates the gray area between concepts such as narrative, play, and reality. So what do you mean by that? And, and how does this ungame-like game uh, accomplish this very sort of strange task that you're, you're uh, attributing to it? Right. Well, I guess I should start by saying that there's a, you know, in, if for people who aren't aware of this, there, you know, there's an entire genre of game in Japan, which is more like a novel than a game. Uh, it's called a visual game novel. And that's one of these. You know, I, I chose one of these as the 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 thing to to write about. Um, basically, the way you play is to read, and it, it it sort of cuts against all the game theory that we know, which you know basically typically makes the argument that you know to build a world that feels like a world in game space, it has to be interactive, it has to be immersive, it has to. Um, uh, you know, ha have more megapixels, right? It has to uh, have that kind of sense. But with this this form, it kind of cuts against that because it's so, uh, you know, so different from that in the sense that you're reading just a lot. It's a lot of reading. Um, but maybe, you know, it's the same in the sense that, you know, it's old school immersion. You know, it's, it's you're getting immersed in the words uh, and the uh, world that way. So um, what I'm suggesting, though, in, in the chapter is that maybe uh, these kinds of games suggest that the opposite of immersion might be true, that, that it's not about interactivity. It's about interpassivity. It's about our ability to kind of sit back and passively watch as someone else plays for us that might be the ultimate way of actually being immersed or actually forming this world. Um, and so Steins Gate, you have a kind of interesting character who has you know discovered a, a, a way of using his cell phone to uh, spoil alert to time travel um, and he uses it to save his friends from being killed right typical thing of trying like a friend gets killed and he tries to go back in time to, to undo the the timeline that had led to that friends killed but each uh, time each time he resets um, to uh, a particular day, a different friend ends up getting killed uh, until finally he finds the right um, one. But I won't get into too many of the details. Um, but the key for the narrative and for our gameplay is that he remembers the other failed timelines. He has this kind of um, parallel to our playing of a game. That is, um, they're making the our external game experience of playing an avatar of uh, that uh, dies in the game 
right? Normally we play, I don't know, Pac-Man, right? And Pac-Man dies and we learn, okay, don't go that direction when the ghost does whatever, go the other direction. Um, and then we play again, a new life, right? Here, the character himself continues to live and remembers each different playthrough, each different timeline. And what I say, you know, this is what's called the metagame is, is becomes part of the game, right? That, that, that um, we are now observing the avatar play basically his life as a game um, that he can play again and again using his cell phone to, re to reset. And just as we learn uh, the experiences of the avatars that we, you know, played time and time again in a, in a video game, he's learning in front of our, our eyes. And it's the, I argue, it's the kind of the inclusion of this metagame-like experience within the narrative of the game itself through, and that's the mechanism through which the game becomes interpassive, right? Uh, that, that is, we're able to kind of uh, step back uh, to a different level. But at the same time as we do that, um, the, the fan base around this game was hyper involved. There was a whole new kind of, or maybe not even new, but but uh, the uh, a whole ramped up metagame like experience, including the selling of this game, uh, where they actually built a, uh, a crashed satellite looking thing into the top of the Rajikan in uh, Akihabara, um, to uh, which is a scene in the the game itself. So they sort of built this physical real thing in the real world um, to, to sell uh, the game. There are maps sold in Akihabara where you could go in and uh, do your pilgrimage to the sites uh, from the, the game in the real world. And um, there are, I talk about playthroughs, these uh, reality playthroughs where um, people are um, posting online their experience of playing the game uh, and and this is nothing unique i mean this is done pretty much for every uh, game that has any success nowadays but uh i argue it's this the once you put the meta game into the game itself that these things outside that uh get enriched that is the there's a new meta game uh to be to be experienced and to be thought about outside of that so uh i say the gaming that uh that's internalized in the narrative makes the the world and and here's where uh, the theory of mimesis comes back echomimetically constructed so to build a world is called echomimesis and this is the way in which which, which that's done and this is a great example uh, or maybe the best example in, in the book of uh, hypermediation that I'm talking about because you have multiple moments in which the uh, character himself uh, directly addresses you as the the uh, player of him or reader of, of him. And uh, on a, in a certain way, the, the, it, it takes on a certain kind of reality because it's sort of addressing or break, trying to scratch at the, at the, you know, the fourth wall um, in, in some way. And in those moments, we really kind of get a sense of, of what I argue is the, the new real um, and how it kind of breaks, breaks down. I think, um, you know, there's probably some folks listening to this who are thinking about the uh, sort of re relationship of uh, a game like this to things like augmented reality AR, uh, on the one hand, where you have, uh, and you have a, a great photograph in the book of the uh, the, the spaceship crashed into the uh, Rajikan uh, in, in Akihabara, uh, but also things like uh, 
you know, thinking about interpassivity and about um, thinking about uh, game streaming, right? And where you're not actually playing the game, you're watching someone else play. Uh, and so there's, there's so, you know, the Steins Gate is not either of those things in the sort of way that we think about like a Pokemon Go as being augmented reality. And it's not Twitch in terms of you're just streaming. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there there is... Uh, there are elements of that that are coming through, and also that that sort of weird fourth wall breaking quality that uh, that it has, where you get addressed by the character. Um, so I think it's it's a really interesting example of a lot of sort of different things that are happening in uh, other other game spaces, right? Whether they be on screen game spaces or off screen game spaces, yeah. Yeah, for me, this really became crystallized at, at one moment when I I started getting bored of of hitting the the same button again and again to turn the page. Essentially, um, when I was uh, playing, th the playthrough takes something like thirty or forty hours, right, of reading. Right, it's. It, I say at some point, you know, it's it's. There's more text in this than there uh, than ten uh, uh, Soseki's Kokoros. So it's it's quite a long, you know, novel in that sense. Anyway, um, I'm getting bored of hitting play. Uh, you know, uh, hitting the advance button to, which is basically the the main way that you play the game. Right, it's the the advance button. That's the embodied thing so there's a mode on on most uh, of these kinds of games that you can uh hit an auto button and it will just basically scroll for you right it's like auto read you know some readers have this now uh I, I use one an app on my phone when i'm reading a long pdf and it'll just kind of keep scrolling for you if you read at a certain rate um so it's basically that right and i, I started thinking what's the difference between this and just watching a playthrough video on youtube of the same thing Right. Is there a difference? And and those sorts of questions came up again and again as I was kind of uh, doing the research for 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 this chapter. Of of I kept finding these these the kind of repetition of of these things in different uh, spaces. Um, so that's that became part of the argument of the chapter as well. Yeah, and I guess that also gets to one other thing that really struck me about the chapter, which is that it's um it's a return of uh, linearity in a medium gaming specifically, which has become less and less linear over time, right? Sandbox games and these sort of undirected open space, game, you know, types of uh, play have become the norm. And I, I haven't played Steins Gate, but I imagine it would be a very strange experience to be sort of stuck back in this excruciatingly linear uh, model of, of production. Yeah. I, I kind of went went for this game because it's so old school in that way that you could really map it out. I think uh, Mary Laura Ryan has maps out uh, in one of her books the you know whatever it is the eight different uh, paths for uh, video game narrative structures, um, and this is like one of the most simple ones. It's basically like a, a, a forking path that repeats. You know, so it's there's whatever six pa uh, pathways that you can go on, and it just it just goes back. So it's one of the most simple things. And I thought if I could just understand this one simple thing, maybe I'll get some deeper insight onto into these other more complex, uh, you know, sandbox type games where you're free to do anything or virtually anything, right? Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of a choose your own adventure book, yes, right? Yeah, From back exactly. in like the early '80s. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, right. I couldn't I but couldn't help but relate choice. to that. Yeah. yeah, but with even less choice than, than a choose your own adventure. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Don't choose your own adventure. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. It's, it, 
Yeah, I mean, so so you have some choices in this game. Like you can you can choose whether or not and when to read certain emails on your cell phone. Uh, you, you have access to the uh, main character's cell phone and things like this. But it's really there's very little play in that in, in any sense, as I as I say in this. But that's that's sort of what makes it interesting um, to to me um, is is um, that it can continue to to be popular in you know the 2000s it's not it's not like this is super old game at, at this point um but it it still carries uh a lot of interesting questions for contemporary gaming for questions of augmented reality um and uh and uh, virtual reality as well yeah and i think it also embodies that thing that you were talking about very early on which is the you know the, what is the um the the uh, what happens when the new real is no longer new, right? When it becomes, when, when you, as you said, you know, take a step back and say, well, I actually don't need that many megapixels. I don't need that download speed. Um, I don't need the, the, whatever the new thing is in gaming that you're actually sort of in a sense taking a step back i mean that's the wrong way maybe to, to phrase it but um that says something about uh what games are as a medium so i thought that was really an, an interesting way to illustrate that point um so this takes us uh to our last chapter and i have to say this is a little bit of a a, a jump uh at least for me uh, as a reader it was a a, a leap uh, away from some of the themes that we had been talking about um and because you're talking about emoji um, and you're taking them very seriously as a new medium. And I certainly understand that feeling of like they are the no longer new, new real medium that we've been talking about, but they're quite different sort of in their character, right? And so this means you have to grapple with some really sort of interesting questions in thinking about emoji, about um, their cultural and materially embed material embeddedness. Um, and you talk about them as sort of contingent symbols uh, with universalist pretensions uh, and, and how the... Uh, no longer realness of them, right? The fact that they've become a part of the fabric of everyday life, um, what that has meant to us as users, as consumers of them, about discourses of race, uh, techno-orientalism, et cetera, um, in the humdrum of the new media. Um, and at the same time, you also point out that Emoji have this, and I want to quote you here, integrative as well as sinister impacts uh, as part of the fabric of society. So I'd like if you could sort of maybe start with that uh, as, as a way to unravel what it is about Emoji uh, that interested you. Well, thank you. I'm glad you found the, the, the chapter interesting. In a way, it was one of the more difficult ones uh, to write. Uh, because it's so ready to hand, because it's so part of our everyday um, lives, uh, maybe the best thing here is to take a minute and expand on on the phrase you quoted, um, integrative as well as sinister impacts. So in a way, emoji stage the problem not so much with media, but with communication itself. I think uh, what a sign means to me, it might not mean to you. Right, and because these signs seem so iconic, seem abstract and free of detail on the surface, right? They're just these like little um, pictures, right? Very clean pictures. Um, in contemporary discourse, they they have been, in in a sense, kind of saturated in in meaning, but also free. Uh, and saturated in um, in the in the medium itself, uh, thought of as kind of free and uh, which is thought of as helping us to to 
communicate better. Free and frictionless communication is something that comes up a lot where, you know, the, uh, it's it's difficult to, to people say it's difficult to express emotion in, in a text, but, you know, uh, you can do it with uh, emoji. And this is sort of one of the uh, misunderstandings of emoji that uh, people often equate it with emoticons. Um, it sounds similar in English, emoticon and emoji, but they have kind of different lineages. Uh, em emoji literally in Japanese means, uh, you know, picture character um, or pictograph, where uh, emoticon is uh, an Englishism that comes from emotion and uh, icon, right? So, uh there's this, it's more like a, a, a fancy convergent uh, of uh, cultures where the emoticons uh, um, kind of came around first. And then when emoji came out, they had that to go on as something that they needed to remediate. Um, that is um, these smiley faces that people were doing with, you know, their slashes and their, their uh, parentheses and things like this. Uh, would now translate be translated into uh, yellow uh, have a nice day faces and things like this in in the emoji world, but, but uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it's it's enabling more frictionless uh, and free communication um, because what these things mean in different places and to different people of different skin tones and things like this um, means something different. And so I got into thinking about um the rhetoric of of this kind of free universal language um that pictographs often are associated with um and the reality of the different usages uh and local usages of of emoji uh so we can say in a sense the the free and frictionless kind of argument is one of immediacy right this sort of rep uh, representation or connecting something with the world, solving a problem in the world, um, getting us to communicate better, right? Bring us closer together, making us more immediate to one another. Um, but pretty soon we actually kind of see how, how uh, using emoji works or doesn't work. You start to notice failures of the aspirational universal language everywhere. Um, I don't know if, if you know the, the uh, H, uh, building in in, in um, the initial emoji set. Um, there's a building with a big H on it um, and a heart. No, I don't think it, I do. So okay, so this is uh, you. Know, you ask most people around the world, what do you think this is? And most people around the world say, oh, it must be a hospital. Yeah, no, because I don't think it is. But, but it is right. <laughs> is it right? Yeah. Anyone who knows Japanese culture. Yeah. thinks about it for a minute and says, oh, right, it's a, it's a, it's a love hotel, uh, an hourly hotel uh, that young people often uh, who live at home with their family have no space for hooking up. They go to the, the hourly love hotel to, to do their, their business. Um, but the, the way we use emoji, like the rest of language is not only, is not only cultural, it's idios, highly idiosyncratic. So people still use it as a hotel, but also some people use it as a, a um, as a hospital, depending on where, where you see it. This is what makes, you know, meeting someone new who uses emoji differently than you, uh, you know, kind of frustrating, but also exciting, right? You, you kind of, uh, you thrill when you see different kind of quirky uses. Um, 
and we, because we have to kind of learn to understand people on their on their own terms uh, through this weird interface of mediation that uh, is now on most phones everywhere. Um, that's connected also, though, to mediations we've experienced with our bodies. In 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 many of these, it's uh, emoji. It's not just um, infrastructure like a love hotel um, or uh, cars and and trains and things like this. But it's uh, it, it's particularly related to our body, probably because of that initial emoticon um, connection, where people were thinking about this as a gap of text of fast communication with text and things like this um, in the late 90s when these were first adopted. And I focus in this chapter then particularly on the poop emoji because it's it seems at first like so clear that this is uh, a universal, right? It's it's clearly poop. We all poop. It should be just fine to to think of it in that way. But uh, it really isn't one. Um, the anthropomorphic uh, swirly poop that is is highly specific uh, in, in its origin uh, f from uh, a manga, and it has a specific set of meanings there. And uh, and people around the world have misapprehended it as things like soft serve ice cream. Uh, because sometimes it shows up as being pink in color, yellow even, um, depending on what phone interface you're using. So ultimately, the the poop is not a, a kind of universal humanism, a kind of free, free and frictionless way of communicating, but it, it serves to remind us of something else. Um, and I first thought of this actually in, in a totally different context. I was reading a novel by the author of uh, Ring, uh, Koji Suzuki, he wrote, uh, uh, he, he loves media and always is writing about media. So Ring is about videotapes, right? Um, uh, but this novel that I was reading uh, was called Drop. And it's uh, a short novel written on toilet paper rolls. So you buy three toilet paper rolls and presumably read this novel as you're wiping yourself. Uh, and it's, uh, and it, the story takes place in a in a toilet in a public toilet and uh but it's about cell phone use um in the public toilet um and so this is what's sort of got me th thinking about uh this and it, it sort of connected to me stories uh i had been reading studies i had been reading uh about the weird scientists who go in, around and swab people's cell phone screens and to see what they find on them and inevitably they find uh the bacteria most associated with fecal matter on people's phones, uh, which is sort of proof of, of this kind of cell phone use. So ultimately, I, I say the reason why this emoji is so popular might not have to do with the fact that we are um, uh, all humans, but rather that there's a very human kind of usage of um, emoji themselves in which we're communicating sitting on our toilets, um, probably more than we should be. Um, and in a way, then the, the book kind of moves from talking about uh, Nipper, the Nipper dog in an Ozu film who tilts his head at the uh, Victor um, talking machine and ends with this kind of vision of users today kind of poping, uh, uh, prodding and poking this, this poop emoji like uh, the robot in Dr. Slump, the manga in which this, this swirly poop kind of first um appeared yeah i uh I, I will admit it was it was a little bit weird to have to take the poop emoji emoji so seriously <laughs> um but as you've explained now it, it you know it makes a lot of sense uh in terms of cre you know creating a kind of uh loop back effect to to get back to some of the themes that uh that you had been uh talking about and also you know it, it made me think of 
uh, I forget who it was that said it, but, you know, we were, we were promised, uh, you know, free energy and flying cars. And what we got is being able to do your taxes while you poop. Right. right. Um, exactly. you know, that, that, it's this sort of, <laughs> there's a sort of dystopianness to the whole thing, which I think in a way, you know, the poop emoji is a kind of, um, it's become a kind of satire of a dystopian technological present. If, if, if I, if I may, and it's sort of interesting to see that, you know, uh, from the, uh, position of a media analysis, which is, you know, looking at it um, in, in, a, in a very different way that I, you know, sort of a more uh, historian uh, oriented person, uh, you know, have, have been tending to see it. Um, so I really, yeah, I really appreciated being able to sort of uh, have that, uh, uh, the circularity, right, where you're really you're moving, going back to that original theme uh, with uh, his master's voice. Um, so yeah, that that uh, uh, that takes us to the end of the book, but uh, not to the end of the interview, because I did want to ask you before we go, uh, what it is that you are up to today, uh, whether you're still thinking about poop emoji or uh, poop emoji, or whether you've uh, moved on to other things and uh, what they are. Yeah, well, I have moved on to other things, although maybe not so far afield. A um, I, based on one of these ideas, the sort of the the final idea, this kind of third moment of living with our media and how media uh, impacts the the real world. Um, I've been working through on another project this year. I'm a, a, a Woodrow Wilson Center scholar, uh, a fellow, I guess they call us, um, this year. And my project is uh, basically working on a book on Japanese Twitter novels. So novels published uh, as uh, in microblog format. I'm also looking a little bit at line and uh, Instagram novels. Uh, And I'm centering these around... um, three to five, I haven't really decided yet, um, different case studies. Uh, so looking at Fukushima, the rise of the Me Too movement in Japan, um, the cancellation of the Aichi Triennale um, in 2019, the um, decision to hold the 2020 Olympics in 2022, uh, 2021 in Tokyo, and finally the coronavirus pandemic overall. So I'm looking at specifically at the question of how these novels, which are novels in 140 characters, very short form novels. There's also some uh, serialized Twitter novels that I, I look at. But primarily, I'm looking at ones that claim to be a novel in 140 characters, which is a weird format, right? It, it, they're almost uh, more like jokes than they are novels uh, or poetry, some people call them. Um, but I'm looking at the way in which these things that are overtly calling themselves fiction um, relate to the news cycle. And as a way to, to say that this is a kind of a test example of whether or not we should label fake news, fake news, because these are saying, I am fiction, I am fake to begin with at the outset. Um, And in many cases they read like uh, fake news does with the difference uh, that they announce that they are fake. So you'll have, for instance, uh, mask denial about the coronavirus pandemic in the form of a Twitter novel coming up. And this pops into people's news feeds as they're reading Twitter, uh, along with perhaps actual denial of uh, of wearing a mask. 
and the question is, uh, you know, does one circulate better than the other? One circulate further than the other? Does one get liked more, higher engagement rate than the other? Do they circulate in similar communities or different communities from these other tweets that look uh, very similar? So what kind of um, policy recommendation might we make towards a uh, social media site in order to deal with the problem of, of fake news? So that's where I am. Uh, and it comes kind of directly out of this question of uh, that the questions that the new real raises in, in the sense of uh, we're now living with with this this media in this kind of echo chamber where um, we have just copies of copies uh, going back and forth. And and yet there there seems to be the potential for these kinds of fictions to contribute to something uh, that people have called irony poisoning. Which I don't know if you've heard this term before, but it, I, I'm fascinated by it right now. And irony poisoning is basically the idea that um, the first time you hear a joke about something, even a caustic, sexist um, joke, you may chuckle at it. Uh, the hundredth or thousandth time you you hear it, you might just uh, forget the fact that it's ironic and think that it's stating something true. Um, so the irony is, is poisoned out of it. You could say your, your ability to recognize irony is, is, is dead, right? Or dying as this goes on. Um, and I, I think that, you know, both fake news takes this on, but also the, the question of, uh, fiction um, actually uh, playing a role in, in this kind of ideological formation, I think, uh, is something that this study is sort of um, trying to, to gauge. And I'm doing it using both digital methods, kind of uh, digital humanities methods, but also kind of uh, traditional uh, close reading methods. Well, that sounds uh, fascinating. And I, I hope that uh, we will be able to have you back uh, pretty soon to talk about that book. Uh, and uh, yeah, when we do, uh, yeah, I'll be excited to, to have you on. Thank you so much. Great. Well, it was lovely to talk to you today. Take care. It was great. Thank you.